and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Ian Ayers, Deputy Dean and William K. Townsend Professor of Law at Yale Law School, and Frederick E. Vars, Ira Drayton Pruitt Senior Professor of Law at the University of Alabama School of Law. They will discuss their new book, Weapon of Choice, Fighting Gun Violence While Respecting Gun Rights, which is published by Harvard University Press. So welcome to the show, Frederick and Ian. Great. Thank you. So I thought this book was really interesting and provocative and made me think about the goals of reducing gun violence more deeply. For listeners who haven't read the book yet, I wonder if you could say a little something about how the kinds of approaches that you're advocating in the book differ from some of the other ways that people in this kind of policy sphere have looked to reduce gun violence. Well, traditional gun control uh, tends to reduce choice by uh, mandating certain actions like gun locks or prohibiting certain things like high-capacity magazines. And our book uh, puts forward several proposals that are choice-expanding. What exactly do you mean by choice-expanding in this context? So I think uh, a good example of that is probably the first proposal we spend a good chunk of the book talking about, Donna's Law, um, also called a voluntary do-not-sell list. And so what that does is it empowers people, if they know they don't want to buy guns in the future, to actually make it impossible for them to purchase guns. So it's, again, harnessing their own individual choice and empowering them to make a decision about Uh, gun purchase that will last into the future. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the origins of that particular Donna's Law proposal. Like, where did that idea come from? And why do you think it will have such an outsized impact or potentially have such an outsized impact on, uh, on deaths from gun violence? So that idea actually comes out of my own personal experience. Um, I have bipolar disorder and have had periods of suicidal thinking um, and have gotten better. And in the periods in which I am better, the idea of being able to take an action like that to protect myself against an impulsive gun purchase uh, and suicide attempt is extremely appealing. Um, Ian and I, and, and with independent collaborators, have done survey research on people who have mental health issues and people who don't, and just asked them point blank, would you also find that to be an attractive um, uh, an attractive proposal. And 30% of people in a nationally representative sample said that they would sign up. Um, now, signing up is important because studies show that reducing access to firearms is one of the most effective ways to reduce overall suicide, not just firearm suicide. Um, there's a misconception that if you take away the gun, people will just find another way to succeed, to to kill themselves. The data just show that not to be true. So something like Donna's Law, if people sign up in the kinds of numbers that we're talking about, could make a significant impact on the overall suicide rate. So reading the book, I learned a lot about both the survey evidence that you gathered in order to substantiate and validate the idea that this might have really positive effects, but also ways in which you've kind of developed and refined 
the proposal over time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of developing this particular voluntary no-sell list uh, proposal, sort of how it changed over time and sort of what you added in order to hopefully make it a more effective and also more likely to be enacted program? Well, we've uh, gone out to states uh, and asked them uh, to introduce uh, this proposal and have had some success, uh, 11 states so far, uh, which include both red and blue states, uh, Alabama, Louisiana, uh, it's it's become law already in Virginia and Washington State, and and through that process, um, uh, we've seen a lot of uh, variation in the way legislatures put this forward, and uh, uh, sometimes taking our suggestions. Sometimes we put forward several options, and but sometimes they even innovate. So uh, the law can be uh, this kind of a. Uh, no guns list can be uh, implemented uh, so that it prohibits just purchase or it can be purchase and possession. Uh, uh, in every state, uh, we've, uh, we've suggested that there should be a path where you could get your gun rights back. And, and in some states, it's just a matter of waiting a, a certain amount of time. Uh, in other places, you have to go, uh, they've, they've set up the law so that you have to uh, appear before a judge and establish that you're not a risk to yourself or to others. Uh, in some states, you have to uh, have a uh, uh, have a form filled out by a psychiatrist that says that you're not a risk to yourself or others. One thing that was really interesting to me reading the book was that there was almost like a secondary story about the legislative process and sort of what kind of features and aspects of the proposed laws were salient to legislators and activists in the different states you were approaching. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experiences on on that front in relation to advancing these proposed bills in various contexts. Sure. So as Ian was describing, there's been a great deal of evolution and experimentation in different states. Um, the initial proposal was um, a purchase-only restriction, um, and you had to turn in a notarized form um, to get your name on the list. Um, so a few things happened you know, early on. Washington is the first state to have adopted it, and the, the legislator there, Jamie Peterson, um, had the great uh, idea to allow for notification so that at the outset, when you signed up, you could list people who you would want contacted if you ever changed your mind and requested to have back your right to buy a gun. Those people could be healthcare providers, friends, families, um, folks who might be looking out for you and able to ask, look, how are you feeling? Are you trying to go hunting or are you trying to buy a gun for, for a suicide attempt? So that's one you know, specific innovation we saw at the state level. Um, Again, a lot of variation in different states based on their pre-existing gun laws. So the program looks different if you're in a state like California that already has a waiting period to purchase a gun um, than it would in a state like Alabama, where it's quite easy uh, to walk into a gun store and walk out um, with a gun. 
The book really suggested, among other things to me, that some legislatures or some legislators in many states were concerned about the cost of implementing these proposals, especially if it were done with a kind of easier to use internet based platform. Um, you know, when it comes to the cost, sort of what are the kind of, what is the kind of cost benefit trade-off and to the extent that implemented programs have seen some success, do you think that might inform legislative decisions going forward? So yeah, cost has been a significant issue in a few states um, that did not pass. Um, and again, those were states where they were trying to do an, an easy internet-based um, sign-up platform, um, and that would require you know uh, maintenance of the site, setting up the site, um, and that was deemed too expensive. California is an example where I think cost um, of that turned out to be prohibitive. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. If we see success in states like Washington and Virginia that went a relatively low-cost route, um, in Washington, you have to just go to the county court uh, courthouse, fill out a form and hand it to a person, essentially zero cost, um, zero marginal cost. The people are already there. The database is already in existence. It uses the federal background check system. Um, so really almost no cost in, in Washington. Slightly more cost in Virginia, uh, where a mail-in form is allowed. Um, but again, very little processing cost. You can, again, use an existing database. And I think you're absolutely right. If we see success and we see demand in those in those states, my hope would be in the future, a state would actually be willing to set up a um, an easier platform for, for people to register, one that could then be copied in different states, or ideally we'd have, you know, a single federal um, uh, statute and, and registry. And Brian, you mentioned the cost-benefit analysis. On the benefit side, you know, we lose uh, more than 20,000 Americans a year to gun suicide, and it takes very few uh, saved lives to justify a very substantial cost. And, uh, and it just doesn't cost that much to set up an internet uh, platform these days. Well, based on your predictions, you know, how, what kind of range of potential lives saved are we talking about? I mean, you know, based on what you know so far about the potential demand for a program like this and the percentage risks that people will attempt suicide, uh, you know, how many people do you think we could save a year by implementing versions of this program? So based on the studies with respect to waiting periods, um, where you find a reduction in overall suicide, estimates range from about 2% to 7%, which again, may not sound like a lot, but there are well over 20,000 suicides a year. So a 7% reduction is, you know, thousands of lives. Um, so uh, we wouldn't achieve exactly all of that um, because it's still, you know, 30% of people may sign up. Um, so you'd get, you know, some fraction of that, but it would still, you know, I think conservatively, we're talking about hundreds of lives if it's set up um, well and people, you know, participate at the rate that they say they want to participate on a survey, um, easily hundreds. One thing I was wondering was, 
if somebody opts into the a program like this, what kind of consequences would follow if they attempted to purchase a gun or somebody sold them the gun while they were still on the list? So in Washington state, there's no penalty for possession of a firearm. So there simply would be no penalty. The the only penalty is on a, a seller who sells to someone who's on the list. So it's really just directed towards acquisition. Um, in Virginia, it is a uh, misdemeanor with uh, fine only um, to possess a firearm. Um, and so that would be the, the penalty if, if caught uh, in Virginia. Well, so you, you make a, a bunch of other proposals in the book, which you describe as kind of like a checklist of potential ways of thinking about allowing people to opt in to programs that would reduce the risk of of gun violence. Some of them relate to property ownership. I wonder if you could sketch out a few of those for listeners so they could better understand these other proposals you're also suggesting. Sure. Well, uh, one of the uh, thoughts is to give property owners uh, better control uh, of their property. Uh, uh, you may have a right to bear arms, but I, uh, as a property owner, uh, should have a right to keep you uh, from bearing arms onto my property. And uh, it turns out that uh, half of the state's uh, uh, don't even have that level of property protection, that in uh, half of our states, uh, uh, in rural areas, strangers can come onto your property with a gun and hunt, uh, in, uh, unless you go to the trouble of posting your property. Uh, if you do nothing, uh, people can come onto your property uh, and hunt, and uh, and it's not just hunting. Uh, if you have a broken dishwasher and you ask a repair person to come fix it, uh, uh, by if you say nothing more, that a dishwasher might be carrying a loaded weapon into your house. We and, and we basically and that's in every state of the country. This dishwasher rule, uh, uh, and and we just this is uh, we've done uh, surveys on this, and it shouldn't surprise you that. Only a minority of uh, the population, and this is included in very red states, uh, think that property owners should, uh, uh, should by default, uh, 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 not have the right to control uh, who comes onto their property. Uh, so we could do better by changing the presumption. Uh, people who want to invite uh, uh, people with guns onto their property can do so, but they should say, come on. Hey Fred, come on over with your gun. But if I just say Fred, come over for dinner, uh, uh, that by itself should not give Fred a uh, uh, and be seen as an invitation for her to come over carrying a concealed weapon. So that proposal made a lot of sense to me when it came to people inviting someone onto property that they live or a business inviting someone onto the property to transact. With them, I wonder if there are concerns, perhaps associated, for example, with like rental properties where people are living in someone else's property, but it's their home. 
does that, do you think, create more tensions with people's Second Amendment rights to gun ownership that might be more troubling for implementing uh, a kind of property-based restriction on gun ownership? Uh, yes. Your, your intuition is is also borne out in some surveys uh, uh, we've just done that uh, the public isn't as supportive of saying that uh, the presumption should be that renters cannot have uh, have a gun, uh, but I I would say it's uh, if you put in a basic Google search, it's very easy to find several examples of landlords that were killed by tenants when the la- landlords uh, have to go collect late rent, and it can be a dangerous thing to do. Uh, landlords have a reasonable uh, uh, justification in not wanting their tenants to have guns and. Uh, uh, not all landlords will choose to do that, but if a landlord uh, wants their tenant to be unarmed, that is, I think, something that we should uh, uh, allow a, the marketplace of association to uh, determine. Uh, if you want to really rent uh, with uh, at a place that allows guns, let's see what the market uh, is, uh, is willing to rent to you at. I wonder if you think the proposals that you're making in the book are consistent with or potentially in tension with sort of alternative approaches to reducing gun violence that might focus more on direct regulation and control. Do you see them as complementary approaches or ones that might have areas of tension? I think very much they are are complementary, that uh, uh, expanded choice approach isn't going to uh, always be uh, the the sole uh, solution to a problem, but it's uh, I think it's particularly uh, uh, effective at trying to combat uh, uh, what is nearly two thirds of gun deaths, which is gun suicide, and and uh, uh, a problem with the traditional approach is uh, where basically the government is deciding who is not an appropriate uh, gun owner is that uh, the government isn't always best placed to decide uh, that question. Sometimes uh, it's the individual uh, herself. Uh, sometimes uh, it is the uh, the neighbor or uh the employer that has crucial information that uh, uh, can can play a role in in this decision, or can let their preferences be felt. I couldn't help but feel reading the book that, on one level, some of these proposals felt like an effort to sort of change the narrative around reducing gun violence from one of the state. Uh, kind of actively preventing people from misusing guns to one of people kind of exercising more autonomy and making choices themselves that would reduce gun violence. Do you think that has the potential for kind of a broader shift in kind of how people think about the nature of the problem and what we might do to be able to solve it? 
um, I hope it adds to the conversation. I wouldn't want to, you know, as, as Ian just said, uh, I believe absolutely that this book complements um, existing approaches to gun regulation. Um, so I wouldn't want to change the narrative so much as to add a new narrative and one that's based on really directly on empowering people. Um, you know, people with mental health problems are often treated as sort of subjects and, oh, you're too dangerous to have a gun. Well, sometimes I know just as well as anyone else um, and want to take steps uh, to protect myself. And we're really just empowering people. And that's just with Donna's Law. And that's that's the theme of the book generally across, you know, rights of property owners, um, rights of neighbors, rights of friends, um, others who have, you know, information about a people, uh, about a person. Um, we're trying to seek them to, to come forward. So if it adds to the conversation, uh, the book will definitely be a success. Another way to to think about our book is that instead of trying to restrict uh, Second Amendment rights, uh, we focus on trying to enhance other uh, constitutional rights, uh, the right of people, of property owners, to control who comes onto their property, uh, the right uh, that uh, Americans have uh, of association, and the right uh, of peaceful assembly. Um, uh, you know, over this last summer, uh, the Amnesty International has um, documented uh, nearly 200 times when uh, protests have been disrupted by armed uh, counter-protesters. And uh, our approach is to enhance uh, the uh, the right of Americans to peacefully assemble. We think that when a protest group uh, uh, applies for a permit, that they uh, should be able to check a box and say that, no, we want our, our permit to be a gun-free event. Uh, and if another group wants to have open carry at their event, if that's allowed in the state, fine. But... Uh, but people should who want to have a gun-free event should be able to have that as well. I can imagine that some people might be concerned about voluntarily giving the government authority to exercise control over them. Are there particular safeguards that you think are especially important to include or adopt in order to make sure that the government doesn't overstep its authority in relation to these kind of programs, and also to ensure that these uh, various approaches maintain the privacy and confidentiality of people's decisions? Absolutely. So that was one thing that came up in Washington State with Donna's law. Um, there was concern by the gun rights activists that um, the proposal could turn out to not be voluntary, that there could be coercion. Um, so in the next legislative session, we came back with a bill that had robust protections on confidentiality, um, strong provisions about um, non-discrimination, um, giving a 
private right of action if anyone dis- discriminates on the basis of participation um, in Donna's law. Um, the statutory authority for the government is limited, uh, and it can only uh, lawfully use the information for one per- one purpose, which is determining whether a gun sale um, is going to go through. Um, so those are the kind of protections that are already there, and I think you're absolutely right to flag as as critical. Well, you you point to some other private programs uh, in relation, some in relation to gun ownership, but also in relation to gambling and other things, as kind of analogs to what you're proposing. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those, you know, whether they've been successful and why you think they might inform our policy choices in this area. So the gambling analogy is one that Ian flagged very early on uh, in this process, and I think it's a really good one. So in a lot of states, um, they have a registry. You put your own name on the list. You can't cash out at a casino. In some states, you're not even allowed to go in the casino. Um, But in any event, it makes uh, gambling much more difficult. Um, And these, you know, studies examining um, these programs show a lot of success in reducing problem gambling um, just by putting some additional self-imposed barriers. Um, and it, the gambling analogy is a good one. I mean, gambling is a, a mental health problem for some people. Um, it is an addiction. Um, and the idea that you know people who have, with a gambling problem have moments in which they want to do something about it and take steps to protect themselves against um, their urges in the future, um, you can see why it's a pretty uh, close analogy. And these gambling um, programs, they're they're what a game theorist would call a a commitment device. Uh, And I remember when Fred first uh, told me about the idea of Donna's Law, it it resonated so deeply. I'm a co-founder of a for-profit uh, commitment store uh, that called stick.com, S-T-I-C-K-K.com, uh, where our uh, customers have put uh, 40, over $45 million at risk in order to, uh, in order to stick to their goals. Uh, the, there are lots of circumstances where during moments of clarity, uh, people decide to limit the, what their future selves can do. Uh, and whether it's uh, uh, smoke uh, or fail to exercise, in these cases, it, we're talking about something much more serious and uh, potentially tragic results. So I found Fred's personal story really powerful in understanding why these laws could be so effective and save so many lives. But you told a bunch of other stories in the book as well, including the story of the the eponymous Donna herself and some other people as well. I wonder if you could share briefly a couple of those just to give people a sense of the circumstances that might make a program like this so effective. Sure. So Donna Nathan um, tragically took her own life after a decades-long battle with bipolar disorder and depression. Um, 
she and her family had been trying so hard um, to prevent this. I mean, she had hospitalized herself uh, three times in the year leading up to her death, um, precisely because of suicidal uh, thoughts. Um, and, you know, she got out of hospital and then one day was back in a, in a dark place, was able to just uh, search Google search gun shop, um, directed her right to the nearest one, um, purchased a gun and then used it the same day uh, to kill herself. Um, so that's that's Donna Nathan. Um, and her, her daughter, uh, Katrina Breeze, has actually become a real partner on the advocacy component of this project um, in terms of being willing to testify in, in states and and uh, speak to the press about this this issue. Um, and it really, it, it's a story that, you know, it, you could blow up um, hundreds of times, uh, maybe a thousand times every year, um, something like this happens. And it's rare that it gets any attention. You know, as Ian was saying, two-thirds of gun deaths, over 20,000 people dying by gun suicide. But it's one person at a time. It's quiet. And a lot of families don't want to talk about it. So it really takes someone with courage uh, like Katrina to come forward and say, you know what, I'm not ashamed. I want to try to do something to help people like my mother. And if I could tell the story of, of Courtney Irby, uh, last year she went uh, to the uh, Lakeland, Florida Police Department and said she was scared for her life. Uh, uh, her husband, uh, had her ex-husband had been uh, jailed for trying to hit her with a car and she had done everything right. She had gone and got, she had gotten a protective order against him. Um, but she was worried that, uh, she told the police, he still has two guns. And when he gets out, I think he's going to kill me. And, the uh, the police department in Florida there, like many police departments, uh, said, well, there's nothing we can do. Uh, even though, People that are subject to a protective order aren't supposed to have guns. Uh, many states operate bizarrely on an honor system where if you're if you no longer can lawfully possess a gun, you're supposed to turn them in or dispossess yourself of them on your own. And uh, Courtney was after she left the department, she went over to her ex-husband's house and uh, retrieved those guns and took them back to the police department, and they turned around and arrested her for armed burglary. Uh, and uh, and she has inspired us to suggest that uh, states should uh, uh, enact uh, unlawful possession petitions, where people like uh, uh, Courtney Irby can petition a court. Uh, when they have uh, information that someone else is in uh, unlawful possession of firearms. And there are millions of Americans who unlawfully possess firearms right now. In closing, Ian, Fred, I mean, your your book is directed to readers, but it's also, I think, a really practical set of suggestions about what kind of real nuts and bolts legislation might look like and why it would be a good idea to enact. I wonder if you could kind of give a pitch, your best pitch for, you know, legislators or people who are thinking about reaching out to a legislator about why this is, why all of these proposals are worth considering and what kind of benefits we might collectively get from them. 
Well, my pitch would say that uh, libertarian gun control is not an oxymoron. We can uh, better protect uh, the constitutional rights uh, of Americans in ways that uh, give them uh, freedom uh, to reduce gun violence. Great. And I would only add, um, we'll save lives. Awesome. Well, thanks to both of you for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading the book. Uh, it was very thought-provoking, and I enjoyed talking to you about it as well. Thank you. Brian, you did a fantastic job. Thank you for uh, reading the book with such care. How can it be you can rest everybody but cruel Stagley, that bad man, oh cruel Stagley. There's the line told Stagley, please don't take my life. I got two little babes and a darling loving wife, that bad man, oh cruel Stagley. What I care about you two little babes and a darling loving wife, you done stole my stuff and hat, I'm bound to take your life. That bad man, oh cruel Stanley. Bad man, oh, cruel Stanley. 